What's that you wear around your neck? St. Christopher charm for travelers on a journey. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 152 today and we are back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? I picked Daughters of the Dust from 1991, and I'm so glad I did. It was written and directed by Julie Dash, with Coralie Day, Alva Rogers, Barbara O, Trula Hoosier, Vertime Grosvenor, and Casey Moore, whom we talked about in Killer of Sheep. It's set in 1902, and it tells the story of three generations of Gullah. You may also know them as the Geechee all about the women in the Pizant family on St. Helena Island as they prepare to migrate off the island and into the north. Now, it's not a straightforward narrative film, and the story is told or woven in different ways through voiceover, imagery, flashback, music, dialogue, ritual, and so on. Julie Dash was inspired by her father's Gullah family, who migrated to New York City in the early 20th century during the Great Migration, when African Americans left the southern states to go north or west. So this is a pretty big deal for a number of reasons, one of which is that it was the first feature film directed by an African American woman distributed theatrically in the United States, as opposed to, say, Losing Ground that we discussed last year. And Julie Dash's husband at the time, Arthur Jaffa, he was the director of photography. He won Best Cinematography at Sundance for the film, a richly deserved award for this. So before we get into the film, I want to talk about the Gullah, the culture that's the focus of this film. Well, we come back again and again to this idea of why representation is so important, why it is so crucial to have filmmakers from every culture be able to tell their own stories. And this is a perfect illustration because this film was my introduction to the Gullah community. If I were from South Carolina, I might have encountered it sooner. It might have been part of my state history in high school. But in the education I received in Oklahoma, for example, it was never mentioned. So I'm fortunate that Julie Dash fixed on this as a story that she wanted to tell. It's just one more example of how grateful I am for cinema broadening my horizons and introducing me to a wealth of ideas and experiences other than my own. I've got some deep background on the culture. Are you ready to go through a little history lesson with me? I'm always curious to hear these things. And also kind of a travelogue. So the Gullah are African-Americans who live in the low country region of the U.S. That's Georgia, Florida, South Carolina. And that's on the coastal plain and the Sea Islands. Historically, that space was from Cape Fear in North Carolina all the way down to Jacksonville, basically. Now it's really just Georgia and South Carolina. And as I referred to earlier, you may also hear about the Gullah people being referred to as Geechee. And that might stem from the Ogeechee River in Savannah. 
You might also hear terms like freshwater Geechee, saltwater Geechee, referring to where people live in the area. And just a bit about the Gullah language, spoken by both the Geechee and the Gullah, it was from enslaved Africans from the Central and West Africa area who developed this Creole culture. They preserved a lot of their African roots, that grammar and sentence structure, and then also absorbed English from the region to form this brand new dialect of English. And this is also something we've been talking about recently, thinking about where most of these enslaved Africans came from. You can hear a bit more in one of our upcoming Patreon episodes, but they came mostly from Angola, the Senegambia area, which is Senegal and Gambia, and Sierra Leone. And again, just to give you a bit more context, the film takes place less than 40 years after the end of the Civil War. And speaking of the Civil War, that was a really unique period for that area, something that I certainly didn't learn about in school either. So at the start of the Civil War, roughly 1861, the white planters in the area basically abandoned their plantations. And the Sea Islands were the first place in the South where slaves were freed, and that meant that a lot of Gullah people joined the Union Army. I'm going to have a link in the post to more about the region, including the Penn Center that was founded as the first school for freed slaves, by the way, still standing. So as the years go by, the area becomes more and more isolated from the mainland. There are multiple hurricanes, and then there's the invasion of resort developers starting in the 1960s. It's that same general gentrification story that we're used to. Families in the area owning land forever can no longer afford it because property values are now so high. Now, I've got a couple of fun facts for us. Okay. This first one is for you, Cole Rowlane specifically. <laughs> can you name the Clutch album that the song Gullah appears on? Clutch being one of your favorite bands, by the way. Is it Elephant Riders? I can't recall right offhand. It is not. It is from 2005 Robot Hive Exodus. Ah, I listen to that all the time. I figured you would know it right off the top of your head, but I'm kind of glad that I stumped you. My apologies to Neil Fallon. I feel so bad now. I was going to say, I hope he's not listening. Now, also speaking of music, did you know that Kumbaya is the Gullah phrase? And they also originated the song Michael Row the Boat Ashore. I did not know that, but I like now having a better association with that than Peter, Paul, and Mary. That's a good point. Or up with people, maybe. <laughs> I've also got some notable Americans with Gullah roots. Are you ready for this? Okay. Jim Brown, Joe Frazier, Michelle Obama, and Chris Rock. Just to name an illustrious few. And by the way, call and response is all based on the Gullah culture. So, having set all of that aside... Are we ready to get into the film? Sure, let's do it. So, as I mentioned, the film is not a straight narrative feature, so I really want to kick off by talking about the poetry and the tone of the film. It is completely captivating, and Julie Dash pulls out all the stops to make it so. You've already mentioned a couple. Language, visuals, period detail. The very first thing that struck me early on is this sequence that achieves a very specific rhythmic and rhetorical effect with the language as it goes through this process of defining life by opposing things, by contrary points. Then the device of the unborn child as narrator, that imparts a sort of 
gentle knowledge that allows me to have faith in what's to come. And you can hear its echoes and influence all the way through to things like the narration in Beasts of the Southern Wild. But as a result of using that character's voice, this has hope where Killer of Sheep often felt hopeless. This feels full of promise because it's rooted in a life that's yet to take place. Then that stampede of wild horses is such a powerful and surprising image. When that happens, it almost has an air of unreality or maybe magical realism is the more appropriate term. The whole thing is like a reverie and it's a very deja vu kind of film as well. This is definitely one of those films that you should watch multiple times because it feels almost like a mood ring of a movie. Like the experience could be drastically different each time depending on what you brought to it or what frame of mind you were in. Well, Julie Dash said that she didn't want to tell a historical drama about African-American women in the same way that she had seen other dramas. So she picked this different type of narrative structure. She wanted to let the story unravel and reveal itself because she said that's the way an African gala would tell the story. And when we hear this voice, finally, of the unborn child, it's this beautiful poetry. It's visual poetry unfolding on screen. It seems familiar in a way, but it's not. There's the modern and the new woven with the past and this deep ancestral history. And so I wasn't surprised when Julie Dash also said she was so influenced by foreign film as a film student, especially Ingmar Bergman. Evidently, he came and gave a talk when she was studying at the AFI. So she said she wanted to do a film that was so deeply embedded in the culture, was so authentic to the culture that it felt like a foreign film. And I think I understand what she's saying. I'm so glad that you mentioned a couple of points there, because that brings me directly back to Julie Dash's place within the L.A. Rebellion. It's not exactly... A boys club the way the French New Wave was, for example, with only Agnes Varda as the prominent female figure. It was about 50-50, the disposition of male and female creators working within that framework. Obviously, she had more of a budget than Charles Burnett was working with in his early films, but I like how she functions in that framework, at least aesthetically. She's a bit of an outsider. You couldn't get more ground-level Los Angeles than Killer of Sheep, so you're right, this feels so much like a foreign film compared to that. And one of the things you mentioned right before that, one of the things that she definitely has in common with Burnett, and one of the things that makes this such a distinctive film, is how hard she pushes back against stereotypes that were prevalent in mainstream cinema at the time. I can't imagine that there is another cinematic portrait of black life in the South that looks or sounds, or moves like this. Over a decade of grant-funded research went into shaping this film, and those years of research pay off here in beautiful ways. Just one example, the indigo that you see them processing and you hear Nana talking about. The history of that region is that these characters were either enslaved or descended from those that were on indigo plantations. The harshness of that process and its toxic nature, the way it poisoned you and stained your skin, it might be more poetic and less immediately traumatic than scenes you might see in something like 12 Years a Slave, but it is no less effective. 
Well, let's talk a bit about the Pazant family at the center of this story, and I'm just going to focus on the women. As we mentioned, we've got Nana, the matriarch. She doesn't want to leave the island. There's Eula, pregnant with the unborn child whose voice we hear. She was raped by a white man. Viola, who's now this devout and proselytizing Christian, bringing a photographer back with her from the north to document her family's migration from the island. There's Hagar and Iona, mother and daughter, mother ready to leave, scornful of others, and Iona who wants to stay with her Cherokee lover. And finally, Yellow Mary and her lover Trula back from the mainland for this final visit. And very importantly, Yellow Mary and Eula are both rape survivors, and that is an important topic here. I don't know about you, but the story reminded me a lot of Chekhov as well. Maybe it was the family returning, the dynamics, the others in the periphery of the family. I definitely see that, but not nearly as repressed or bound up. Good point. Well, there are just these indelibly beautiful images all along the path as everyone comes together again. The journey there, the life on the island, and there are sketches of character done so deftly through dialogue like all that yellow wasted. So I want to talk about how the film looks. Again, I want to mention cinematography by Arthur Jaffa. The first thing that struck me before I read that this was intended back to that whole foreign film look was that South Carolina here looks like another country to me. It's not the South Carolina I was familiar with from my childhood. I think what Jaffa does here, especially when we see places like Ebo Landing, which was the set of a mass suicide event, or the Pizantz family's homes, he's photographing Places and spaces like an Impressionist master. I think Matisse, whenever I see these interiors. You're absolutely right. It is heartbreakingly beautiful to look at sometimes. The costumes, the fog in the trees, how verdant everything is. It's a surface comparison, but it gives me a similar feeling as another languid and distinct period piece. In some ways, this feels like a picnic at Hanging Rock for the African diaspora. Interesting, I hadn't thought about that one. It's that way that things feel gauzy and familiar and slightly suspended, like we're waiting for something important, but we don't quite know what form it will arrive in. And geography is incredibly important here, just like Killer of Sheep. I'm probably going to compare and contrast with Killer of Sheep a ton in this episode, but this is one of those points. So much of this is about isolation self-imposed and otherwise. And that wouldn't be possible without this very specific location. And then there's another touch that I really love. The way they interact with each other within this space is interesting too. They have all this room to spread out and yet often still remain so physically close to one another. Unlike circumstances in Killer of Sheep, it doesn't feel like a lack of privacy when you have a choice in the matter. It feels so much like intimacy. And you mentioned Indigo before. Color does a lot of storytelling here. The costumes, like you were just talking about, the peach, the canary yellow, the lavender, the eggshell. It's about this vibrancy, this range of experience. So when you compare those looks to someone like Viola, who has that crisp white shirt and the black skirt, it's like she has this division within her, the modern and the old. So I've deliberately been creating this picture of the family by just talking about the women. Do you think of this 
as a woman's film, or am I being reductive? Well, the menfolk actually give voice to that. They say, woman is the sweetness of life. That's what I remember. So, yes, I think it is a woman's film, quote-unquote, but I also don't like the narrow, unspecific lane that that phrase connotes. It makes me think women's issue film, which is a phrase I dislike the same way I shudder when I hear the term advocacy documentary. So there has to be a better phrase. It's a matriarchal film, absolutely. And the women are the engine and architects of every frame and idea. That's what I wish the phrase conveyed. It's so much like Antonia's line that we discussed about a million years ago. I think of that same community of women keeping everything together. And it's women in the plural because every one of these characters has their own unique take on their relationship with the family's heritage. So what we have is a spectrum of ideas about those responsibilities and the way to carry them forward. And it does seem like the men in this story have it relatively easy. On the women's side... It's not so sweet and full of remembrance that way. There's a struggle here. Nana is in physical pain almost at the idea of this migration. She's tied in knots over the importance of this soil. And I think I can actually empathize with the relatively uncomplicated nature of these male characters in this case, because I don't know that I believe in the importance of soil the same way. I'm rootless by this definition. And I think it's interesting that the majority of the close-ups in the film are of women. The majority of the dialogue is spoken by women and girls. We're dealing with rape, as I mentioned. So we have Eula, who's about to give birth, carrying this child of rape. Her husband is the one who's struggling, not her. She doesn't really get the choice to struggle. So we're talking about this fertility of the women, the fertility of the soil. They are literally daughters of the dust. The ones keeping it together and also perpetuating these traditions. I agree with you, though. I don't really want to say a women's picture, as you might refer to something that George Cukor directed mm -hmm. in 1939. Now, you mentioned that you're rootless at this point, at least compared to the idea in the film. I know I am. So the central issue at hand here is the migration. I'm asking you, Cole, would you leave the island? No question, without a doubt. I'm not one to put much stock in maintaining tradition for tradition's sake. Looking at the great arc of humanity down through the ages, you don't make history by staying at home, at least not as often. So I really get the constant drive to go in search of a better, more interesting life. And crossing over to the mainland is momentous enough, like you say, to commission a photographer. This is a historic moment. It's progress. And it's bittersweet that it presages the dissolution of the family a little bit. You have these generational differences, the old ways versus the new. It's hard to keep them tied to the old ways if they are intellectually curious. Even just material concerns are such an enticement. You look at them pouring over this catalog, playing the game of everyone picking out the one item they would most want to have. I did that when I was a kid. Yeah, absolutely. I can picture where I was sitting Christmas 1980 in my room, looking at the JCPenney catalog, circling the things that I wanted to get. The idea of calling it a wish book, that is just brilliant marketing. And it really nails exactly what that feeling is all about. It's seductive and it easily captures the imagination. And I think a little bit, the mainland and all of those enticements 
it makes them underestimate their matriarch a little. Some of them exhibit a disdain for what they perceive as the primitive qualities, the superstitions of their old world. But she's maintaining that connection to Africa. It is a powerful metaphor for her to be cleaning weeds out of the cemetery. The message is, our ancestors watch and keep us as we do them. There may be no room for that in the future that some of these characters want. Well, I want to ask you a follow-up to that because something that you said in your response made me think about this. Nana says at one point, you're not going to the land of milk and honey. So is it still important to go just for the sake of going? Yes, because it's there. That sort of forewarning does not counteract that nature. The immediate thing that comes to mind is how the death penalty isn't a deterrent for people to stop killing. They're going to do that no matter what. I know it wasn't for me. (laughs) Well, I know nobody could have ever told me anything anytime I moved. And I feel like I've been hitting the road forever, so I sure would have gone. Yeah, it's all an eternal, cyclical, unavoidable conflict. The children will carry your spirit forward into the future, into modernity. You have no choice but to let them. This is the best compromise you can hope for while you remain with the old souls. And you don't get more of a generational separation than the elderly matriarch and the voice of the child yet to be born. And a moment ago, I mentioned that it was hard to keep people tied to the old ways if they were intellectually curious. This is something you touched on briefly, too. The same thing goes for romantic curiosities as well. I am intrigued by the in-between position of that young girl who rides off on that horse with her lover. She's not leaving for the modern North. But she still is leaving her culture behind in a way, maybe to be taken in by another culture that has similar steadfast ideas about home and hearth. Or maybe it will lead to an exchange of traditions. Adopting some of her lovers, introducing some of her own to him, as opposed to an outright abdication. Or assimilation. For example, Yellow Mary is the one who went off long ago and brings back her female lover, which is a very big deal in 1902 and in this culture. So things are changing rapidly all the time. Now, I've mentioned the modern mixed with the traditional, and I think that that is nowhere more prevalent than with the music, the score. This film has almost constant underscoring, which you know is generally not something I'm into, but it's a totally different animal here. What did you think of the music? Did the modern element of it, of that music, take you out of this period story? Well, as someone who spent a lot of time in music stores looking at instruments, synthesizers, guitars, all the fancy new things that were happening in the music tech at the time, it definitely feels like 1990. And I don't say that in a dismissive way, more a thinking fondly about the state of the art back then kind of way. Yes, it's ostensibly a period piece, but it feels more to me like it exists somewhat out of time. So all of these musical influences and tones and voices commingling makes total sense to me with what she's trying to do. I really like it. There's just such a range of it as well. They're singing, performing, just the music itself with traditional instruments, with modern instruments, and even just something like the sound of the music of frogs, it's really intoxicating. So as Julie Dash said, the story folds in on itself and unravels and re-ravels again and again. 
And that reminds me a lot of the transitions that are happening past and present. And I started to think that death and the migration are really the two big transitions happening. And those really seem to work within this folding and unfolding structure, staying and going, going in different directions. And so much of this is about ancestors as predicators of the future life. So is the migration a form of death or rebirth? It is a complicated proposition, all of this, to be sure. The thing I think about most in relation to this question, the saltwater Africans, as they call them, and the irony of clinging so hard to this particular land that is not exactly theirs and bears all the hallmarks of a place they arrived at ultimately via slavery, that was a forced migration versus the voluntary one that some of the family is now undertaking. And both camps have their legitimate points. On the one hand, we stake our claim here and transform something that was not ours by the power and resilience of the traditions and customs we bring with us. We take what little we are given and we bend it to our will with time and reverence and love. And I would throw knowledge in there too. I think that's something that often gets lost. And then on the other hand, how do you resist the lure of likely being the first generation of your family since you were brought here to strike out on your own and dictate your own future. And then I guess death could be considered the ultimate migration, I suppose, but that's a more metaphysical question to be addressed by the religious influences at play here. We've talked again and again about the poetry in the script, and there are artists behind the camera, and there are also artists in front of the camera. In contrast to something like Killer of Sheep, we've got experienced actors in this cast, how did you feel about that choice? I honestly wasn't affected much by the difference. It was great to see Casey Moore again. It is cool to see her aging into strength that way. That was really nice to see. Because that was a long period of time in between those films for her to grow Almost into her womanhood. 20 years. But I say it didn't make that much difference because it's definitely apples and oranges. What Julie Dash was asking of them was so much more stylized. So some of the ways that we would traditionally judge performance are kind of upended. For example, there are a couple of big emotional moments later in the film that feel almost like all punctuation. Does the theatricality of some of those scenes and monologues appeal to you with your theater background? You read my mind and that's exactly what I was thinking. I am so glad that so much beautiful precision was achieved. And I think that that's because it was in such capable hands. I'm not suggesting that it couldn't have been achieved otherwise. But like a play, I really want to believe what I'm hearing and seeing. So at no point did I doubt the story or feel taken out of it by thinking, gosh, that person wasn't having a great day or where did they hire them from? And this was also on purpose because she had the money to be able to do it. She hired veterans. This was a tribute to them for all the work that they had done in independent film. We've talked about roots. We've talked about responsibility. And we've had, just you and I, a lot of discussions about family in our podcast. The coincidence of blood, for example. And in this story, there are characters who are violently at odds within themselves and their families about what to do. 
And as we've mentioned, for Nana, it's about keeping the family together and also about honoring and being tied to the land that is the sweat of your love, as she says. Plus, they're reckoning with a huge past here. So what responsibility do you have to what and who came before you? Well, if you've listened to the show very much, you probably know my answer. Speaking purely for myself, I don't feel much of that. I approach that more on a personal level with small, individually meaningful things. I use my great-grandfather's shaving mug and brush, for instance, to this day. I think my grandmother's comal should be in the Smithsonian. I don't know what that is. You make tortillas on it. Oh, okay. It's a little cast iron tool. Oh, God, I didn't know that's what it was called. Yeah, I would walk from here to Oklahoma for one of her tortillas. But again, I know that's a purely personal thing. Carrying on large-scale traditions, not so much. If you take the long view of history, you know that you can never fight social evolution and encroaching modernity. You are a fool to think so. At best, you can adapt your ways, but holding people responsible for the continuation of an entire culture, that is an unfair and unreasonable burden to place upon someone. I think that's really interesting because if everyone decides to abdicate that responsibility, and I'm using that word for a reason, what is anyone left with? And I think Nana's argument about, you know, where you're going is not so great. You've got it great here, even though that's not exactly true, is still pretty compelling. But like you said, there are all these new influences, and how can you not pay attention to those? I love the moment, though. I'm so struck by this. When Eli breaks the glass tree, what a huge symbolic moment that is. The glass tree, for those who don't know what that is or maybe don't have that southern tradition, the story goes, the tradition goes that you capture evil spirits in the bottle and you put them in the tree so they can't get out. It's like a protection. But he's also symbolically breaking that tradition as well. And I think that that means that he's also hopefully going to do something else than his ancestors might have done. Welcoming that child, making this new, better life. But here's another twist to that. Again, we're talking about this very specific ancestry. So is it more or less important to remember or commemorate your ancestors when their lives and deaths were not considered important enough for even written records? I'm of two minds about this particular part of it. On a larger scale, especially with cultures that have been pushed to the margins, I am fully aware of the significance of maintaining traditions and working to prevent that erasure. But it's hard for me to fully embrace that in my own life because of one of the bedrock tenets of my own philosophy that keeps me on my specific path and addresses the inherent absurdity of fighting against all of our eventual obscurity. And I think it's the answer to the question you asked just a moment ago about what happens when everyone just abdicates these responsibilities. What it comes down to is this. Everyone's grave eventually goes untended. Wow, I've got to sit here for a second and reckon with that one. Yeah, it's true. And it's a little sad and melancholic to think of that idea that eventually we're all going to be forgotten, but it's also such a great leveler. Well, I guess we have the benefit of this film preserving a culture, at least telling us its story. 
And I'm so excited to see what's happening here within this specific story, creating this hopeful future that comes with accepting the past, preserving it instead of obliterating it, and also without being claimed by it. Well, let's not lose sight of all tradition here because we've got a great scene preparing this traditional meal for this big feast, okra, yams, shellfish, all at the beach. So here's my big question. What is a folk movie without food? Now you're speaking my language. Exactly. Because food preparation is such an important element of custom and tradition. I love scenes of big communal meals. And this is no exception. You should never turn your nose up at a good low country boil, ever. It's such a great thing to create and participate in and observe when everyone is so happy and satisfied in the wake of a good meal. And it's great fodder for metaphor, too. They mentioned having had the gumbo in Savannah. It's good, but they didn't put everything in it. This is what you trade for the mainland and progress. You sacrifice richer, deeper, older flavors in your life for speed or convenience and whatever other benefits the city may offer. And that's actually how I learned more about the Geechee Gullah was through a food show. It was rediscovering for those of us who needed to have it discovered that whole culture. So I can't wait to go to the low country again. Well, like you, I was waiting for the food. I was delighted when it came. It's history and nourishment and remembrance and celebration all at once. Well, I think there's something else interesting to point out here at this feast. We get more full glimpses of three different religious perspectives. There's Christian, traditional African, and Muslim. I mentioned earlier Eli breaking the bottle tree that's directly from Africa. Viola's Christianity is fearsome and unwavering. Bilal's Islam is prayer and quiet. And then we have the traditional African all around us with that ring shout ritual and call and response, like I mentioned earlier. Just one more great example of how Julie Dash is taking all of these disparate influences and, like you said, weaving things together so that they collapse in on themselves. Some support other ideas. Some come up in direct conflict with other ideas. The way she threads these within each other is just brilliant. Well, we're coming to the close of the film. Everyone is making their final decisions. Yellow Mary chooses to stay on the island with Eli and Eula. Iona stays with her lover. And then everyone who remains watches the rest of the family members depart. So I've heard it said, I can't find any attribution for this, by the way, but you may have heard it too, that to tell a universal story, you have to tell a very specific one. Do you agree or disagree with that? And if that is the case, do you connect to this story? Well, both can be true. I think of something like Aesop's fables and how broadly instructive and universal they feel versus something like this. In your question, though, I think I would exchange the word specific for idiosyncratic in this case, maybe. The uniqueness and singular nature of this movie are what makes it something that people will carry with them long after they see it. I don't think its success hinges upon the specificity of the narrative within. I think it's much more important that the method of delivery in this case is so emotional, impressionistic, and memorable. As for the other part of your question, I don't connect exactly 
but that's by design. And I'll explain what I mean. This is a very different experience we've mentioned in terms of connecting to it versus Killer of Sheep. I feel like Burnett was simultaneously exploring themes both universal and specific to the black experience in Killer of Sheep. So like I said in that episode, the universal gives me a foothold and then I take the rest as a lesson. Daughters of the Dust exists outside of any of that. Almost to the point that I feel like it may be the wrong question to ask whether or not I connect to it. That's not the point of its existence. It's not for me in that way. The movie doesn't care and it ultimately doesn't matter whether I can connect to it or not. Its mind is on other things. Preventing erasure, exploring a very specific community. My part to play in that is the most minor of supporting roles, just basically appreciating it and spreading the word about it. I'm with you and I think I felt that more strongly maybe with Killer of Sheep. I possibly connected to this one a little bit more deeply because of the geographical area. And also there is a very definite gender axis thing there. Killer of Sheep is a more masculine film. Daughters of the Dust is obviously a more feminine film in the broad sense of that. And like you asked me before, that theatricality I definitely connect to. And it's intimacy. I think you used that word earlier. It's so vast in scope with the story of the Great Migration, which was huge, into a very small population, one family. And I think it gives us this larger perspective that I think is very important to have about trying to understand how African-American families persisted against slavery, but remained true to their own memories. That remaining true to your memories part, it actually sparked something that I thought about in relation to last year when I spent so much time focused on films from Africa. One thing I encountered again and again as I was going through those films was the function and significance of the griot in African culture. A griot is a traveling poet, storyteller, musician that is the keeper of the flame in terms of the oral tradition. They're often looked upon with reverence as a kind of living archive, and they are crucial to the preservation and dissemination of ideas, memories, and traditions. And I love how this film embraces that idea as both text and metatext. Nana is performing some of that function. The unborn child is performing some of that function. And Julie Dash herself is performing some of that function. Well, I'd like to close with something that Julie Dash talked about in terms of bringing that perspective, that Black perspective, if you don't mind. When she was asked about challenges that she's faced in her career, I think she said something incredibly important that's stayed with me. Yes, you can have a Black writer, you can have a Black director, but whoever has final cut has final cut. And if they cut things out, you have a milk toast, bland result that's based upon a myth and not reality. We haven't gotten past that. It's not an isolated, siloed event. It's systemic. It has nothing to do with politics, but everything to do with identity and history and the pulse of our community that just gets censored and erased. So thank you, Julie Dash, for making this film. And thank you for going on this film journey with me. So how about your recommendation? Well, I'm glad you ended with that quote there because my recommendation actually falls right in line with this idea. And that is Cane River from 1982, produced, written, and directed by Horace B. Jenkins. 
It stars Richard Romaine and Tommy Myrick. And like Daughters of the Dust, it's also rooted in the history of the American South, but in a more modern setting. It's a love story that uses that romance to dissect issues of class and colorism within one of the first historically free communities of color in Louisiana. It was shot by an all-black crew, and it features an all-black cast, and it also shares with Daughters of the Dust that characteristic of being unconcerned with the gaze of any but its own community. Now, sadly, Horace B. Jenkins died at the very young age of 42. He worked a lot in public television, but this is his only feature film, and he died just days after its New Orleans premiere, and the film then slipped into obscurity for almost 40 years. Boy, that's too bad, but I'm glad you're mentioning it here. Fortunately, a negative was discovered, and a restoration effort was mounted, and so now it's widely available on home video like it never was before. You can pick it up from our friends at Oscilloscope, one of our favorite companies. And you really should if you're interested in the history of black independent cinema. It's a discovery similar to Kathleen Collins' Losing Ground in the sense that it fills another crucial gap depicting honest and accurate aspects of black life on screen that we just weren't getting in the mainstream cinema in the early 80s. Highly recommended. What about you? I picked All About My Mother from 1999, written and directed by Pedro Almodovar, and starring Cecilia Roth, Marissa Paredes, Candela Pena, Antonio San Juan, Penelope Cruz, and Rosa Maria Sarda. It's a complex, generational story about identity and loss and love with all of that characteristic humanity and humanism and acceptance and breaking the chains of repression. Basically, every emotion under the sun will be represented here and you will feel in turn. I'm not going to even get into the story details because there are so many threads and I want you to let it unfold if you haven't seen it already. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Cane River and All About My Mother. And that brings us to the end of episode 152. First and foremost here, we would like to say a special thanks to Jesse Dampolo and Bobby Stiles for their support of the Patreon. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We would also like to say a special thanks to Chris and Bo for having us on their show, Kicking and Streaming. They had us on to compare and contrast the relative merits of Georges Franju's Judex and Michael Bay's Six Underground. It was a gas. Yeah, it we was. had fun. We had a really good time hanging out with them. So go check that out if you are so inclined at kickinginstreaming.com. That's kicking the letter in streaming, all one word, dot com. If you'd just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter lantern underscore cast and i just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time the fine gentlemen of fuds on film leanne kubich spencer seams rain barrington marco waller and andy wolverton if you're sharing the show or talking about us please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks 
You can find the show on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave a rating or review via one of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Podcast.